Welcome, good morning to everyone. My name is Tim Harris, I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. Simply delighted to, to welcome you to worship. Open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 13 is where we'll begin. James chapter 4, verse 13, in the middle of a message series entitled To All the Scattered Ones. We're going pretty much verse by verse through the book of James. We have skipped a section here uh, for today. I'll be coming back to that in a couple of weeks, but uh, we're going to pick up right here, chapter 4, verse 13. Any military guys in the house? Anybody? Yeah, Tom? Stand up. Demonstrate a salute for us. Show us proper form. Uh, Willie Ray, Private Willie Ray, aren't you military too? Yeah, you and Tom, give us proper form for a salute. I just want to see exactly how it's done. There you go. Private Willie Ray, awesome. Reporting for duty, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Notice how that snaps. Go ahead and try it, guys. Try it. Let's see it. How's it go? Yeah, snaps right up. Watch those guys. It snaps into place. Private Willie Ray. A little bit sharper than, uh, than Tom Goodhue, but, but, but that's okay. That, that's okay. Yeah. It's amazing to watch those guys uh, snap those salutes up into place. It's, it's, it's actually, uh, it's really impressive, a lot of fun to see that. Um, the only time I've ever seen it done differently by real military guys is at the cemetery, at the graveyard. Have you ever been to the cemetery when the military fellows are there to present the flag to the widow, and they stand by the, by the grave of one of the fallen ones, have you ever seen them salute there? Because it's different. It's different. It is not fast. It is not snappy. It is the slowest thing you'll ever see. They bring it up slow. They hold it for what seems like forever. And they bring it down. Very slow. Why so slow at the grave? Because all of us have a certain kind of respect for death, or, or we ought to. We tend to go through our lives at a pretty quick pace. We snap, we jerk, we kill time, we waste time, we control time, we plan our time, we schedule our day. But, but there's a very important thing to remember, and James brings us around to that at this point in his letter. He just wants to re remind you very, very importantly that time runs out. Time, time runs out. If James's primary concern in writing the book of, of, that he writes, if it's about inactive believers, the, the idea that you have churches full of people who, who say one thing and live another way, say one thing, do another, then, then maybe the lesson we need to learn is that we just don't have all the time in the world. And this is where he takes us in chapter 4, verse 13. So, so join with me there. James, chapter 4, verse 13. This is a warning, it's a condemnation really for people who have a certain attitude. And this is what it says. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to a certain town and stay there for a year and we'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Look here. You who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there for a year, do business there, do such and such, make a profit. 
How do you know? I've uh, brought in this morning a, a, a can of Eagle Brand milk. I've seen this can all of my life. It was in your grandma's pantry, maybe in your mama's pantry, maybe your pantry today. Uh, I just want you to always notice there when it says Eagle Brand in the big letters, and the small letters here in the middle, you'll see the logo of a company called Borden. Borden Dairy Products, one of the oldest companies in the United States, at one time the largest, uh, largest dairy company in the United States. The, the Borden family invented this process of condensing milk and putting it in cans, so therefore milk wouldn't spoil. It was pretty amazing. They actually became very, very wealthy selling canned milk to, to the soldiers in the Civil War. That's when they became very, very wealthy. Then they invented glass milk bottles, and that was huge at one time. And so the Borden family became very, very, very wealthy, very, very wealthy. Around the turn of the century, they had a son, a grandson. His name was William, William Borden. He was, uh, I guess you'd say, the luckiest kid in the whole world. He, at, at the age of 16, his family was one of the most powerful families in all the world. And for his birthday present when he turned 16, Stephen, Stephen turned 16 tomorrow, actually. Yeah. Stephen, when William Borden turned 16, his very, very wealthy parents gave him a trip around the world. Bon voyage, Stephen. I think that's what you ought to do. Yeah. William Borden's family, they, they gave the 16-year-old kid a, a, a trip around the world. This was the life that this kid lived. But you got to understand that there, there's something different about William Borden, and it wasn't that he was the richest kid that the world had ever known. Um, even at 16, when William Borden traveled the world, he just fell in love with the people of the world, and his heart broke for the fact that they didn't know Christ. You just have to understand how William Borden would when he came back from his trip around the world at the age of 16, William Borden opened up his Bible and he turned to the very back to the empty white pages and he wrote two words in his Bible. He wrote two words. He wrote, no reserves. No reserves. In, in other words, he was saying to himself, I'm not holding anything back. No reserves. No restraint. I am going all in, all out for Christ. And that was his commitment at the age of 16 with two words, no reserves. He was giving everything to Christ. He finished school. He went on to college. He went, of course, to Yale because he is in the most wealthy family that the world had ever known. William Borden said that on his first day at Yale University, that the president gave the convocation, brought all the students in, and inspired them with, with his incredible lecture on education and, and the meaning and purpose of life. And that day, William Borden, the freshman in college, said he listened to the president of the university speak, and it really frustrated him and made him sad. Because he said, here, at one of the greatest institutions of learning that the world had ever seen, the president of this institution, when he talked about the purpose of life, he gave those students, the most powerful men that the world had ever known, he gave them absolutely no purpose worth living for. That's what William Borden said. He gave them no purpose large enough to possibly devote your life to. He was frustrated. Early on in his freshman year, William Borden asked two other guys if they would meet him for prayer before breakfast every day. So they just started meeting there outside the cafeteria, and they would pray and read a verse of Scripture every, every morning. William Borden and two guys. 
and then it was three guys, and then it was four guys. And, and, and before William Borden was a senior, there was over a thousand, over a thousand students on that campus meeting every single day for prayer and Bible study. You understand? One young man turned his campus, and that campus happened to be Yale University, he tur- turned his campus upside down. And in his college days, he turned to the back of his Bible, the white page, and where he found when he was 16, he'd written two words, no reserves. In his college days, he wrote two more words. He wrote no retreats. Now, four words in his Bible, no reserves, no retreats. In other words, there's no going back for him. Just just no going back. William Borden would say that your purpose in life, every single moment, all the time, was to make sure that you said no to yourself and yes to Jesus. You say no to yourself and yes to Jesus every time, every day. That's what William Borden would say. He had this incredible heart for missions. And I remind you, he is one of the wealthiest young men that the world had ever seen. But the money meant nothing to him. People who went to school with him said that he wasn't remarkable because he was rich. He was remarkable because of his passion for Christ. That's what made him stand out. He longed to be a missionary, and he developed this incredible heart for Muslims who lived in China. So William Borden, after he finished college, he went to Egypt first, where he was going to study the language, and then on to China to be a missionary. He was in Egypt just a very short time. He contracted spinal meningitis and died there at the age of 25. 25 years old, and he died there. They buried him in, in, in Egypt. And in Cairo, they say, if you go down a certain really dusty little narrow alley, you'll come to this little shabby cemetery where English missionaries are, are buried. And there's just this grave there that, that belongs to a, a very young man named William Borden. And the inscription on his tombstone says, William Borden, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for this life. It's on his tombstone. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Sometime before he died, and nobody knows when, it must have been in Egypt, he had turned back to the white page of his Bible in the back, and and there were four words he had written to his life. When he was 16, he wrote the words, no reserves, and, and sometime in college he had written, no retreats. But sometime before he died, he went back and he wrote two more words, no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I just want with all my heart to live a life like that. I just want with all my heart to be that man. Apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. To have that on your tombstone. To have people say that about you 
at the end of your life. And I remind you, he lived only a very, very short time. He died at 25 and, and accomplished so much and impacted so, so many people. Apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. I just wonder one day after you're gone, and you know you'll be gone one day, right? I'm not telling you something you don't know. I could be preaching your funeral, so you ought to be good to me. You, you should keep me on your good side. Um, you could attend my funeral one day as well. That's the point. We don't know. But, but we do know that time runs out. We know that we don't have all the time in, in the world. And so one day I'll be gone, and one day you'll be gone. And, and they will sum up our lives. You know, I mean, when they want to talk about Tim Harris, they won't tell the whole story. You'll leave out all the best parts, I'm sure. You'll just sort of sum me up in a sentence or two, you know. Man, he sure could sweat. I mean, I mean something like that. I mean, it's just the truth, right? I mean, when you talk about your, your grandparents who have gone on, I mean, you just tend to wrap up their life in a sentence to, wow, Grandma sure did love, you know, as the world turns. She sure did love peanut brittle. You know, I mean, that sort of thing. But, but the question that James causes us to ask today is... Um, how would you explain your life? Well, what is the explanation for your life? If you had to somehow give an account today or later when other people tell the story of your life, how will they explain you? What made you do the things that you did? What made you think the way that you think? What made you do with money the things that you have done with your money? What's the explanation for your life? And when it came to William Borden, there was no way to talk about William Borden without also talking about Christ. And that's important. Do you see that? You cannot. You cannot tell the story of William Borden without at the very same time telling the story of Christ. And that is how it should be. That is exactly how it should be with any of us, with all of us. You see, even as Christians, we tend to live our lives as if it's all about me. It's that my life is, is, is sort of my thing, and, and then Christ is a part of it. Christ is, we might even say, he's a big part of my life. No, that's the part that we misunderstand. Christ is not a, a big part of my life. He, he's not a character in my story. I am a, a small character in his story. Do you understand? It, it is about Christ. And if I live my life correctly, if I live my life according to his purpose, if I am a true believer, then there would be no explanation for my life apart from Christ. You understand? I am a small, small character in his great story. My life is about Christ. And yours as well. Supposedly. Supposedly. And that's where James comes back around. Understand he's writing as a pastor to Christians scattered everywhere. And if you really read his letter, it, it, it sounds like for, for James, the, the big issue, the, the, the burning issue in the church of his day was just simply, how do you explain all of the inactive church members? How do you explain all of the people who call themselves Christians, who go to church, how do you explain all of these people who take the name of Christ, but then they live just like the world? That This is the issue that James keeps circling back around to. How do you explain Christians who say one thing and then do otherwise? How do you explain people who say they believe in God, but then live a life that, that absolutely contradicts everything God teaches in his word? How do you explain Christians who live a life just good for nothing? How do you explain that? And this brings us to chapter 4, verse 13. 
Look here, you who say, again, it's, it's a warning. See here, he's saying, pay attention, warning. It's a condemnation for all who say, Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a place, and we're going to do such and such a thing, and we'll make money there, and then we'll come on back, and, and then we'll all meet at Buckhead, and, and you know, we'll, we'll do supper. Look out, those who talk that way, he says. Be careful, warning those who say, today or tomorrow, we'll, we'll do, you know, today, if, if Pastor Tim ever quits preaching, we're all going to, we're, we're going to go to uh, the, the new El Mazatlan out there on, on Scottsville Road. We're going to go out to the Mexican restaurant. I'm probably going to have the fajitas because I just love to hear them sizzle. And then I'm going to go home and take a long nap in the hammock. And then, and then tonight, you know, we may come back to church. Or we may not, you know, we may just stay home and, and, and watch who wants to be a millionaire, whatever you people watch on Sunday night I just don't know uh, and then tomorrow I'll go to work and make some money and, and maybe grill out you know mow the yard James says look out those who talk that way what kind of strikes you about that well everybody you know talks that way I mean that just sounds like people talking and, and even James, as, as, he, as he describes how people talk, he doesn't even fill in many blanks. You know, look, look here, those who say, you know, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a place and do such and such a thing and, you know, whatever. I mean, he doesn't even fill in the blanks. It's just look, people who talk like this, and then it turns out everybody talks like this. Most of us just talk this way. What is he condemning here? What is the warning? What kind of person is being singled out here? Because for the life of me, this just sounds like the way every one of you will talk after we say the final amen in this service. I mean, this is just how people are. Today, tomorrow, we'll do something. We'll go somewhere. We'll, we'll do something or something else. What's he condemning? Is he condemning planning? Today or tomorrow, we'll go somewhere, we'll do something, we'll make money. Is, is, he, is he condemning money? I mean, is he condemning planning or making money? I mean, I, it, it's really hard. If you just read that from your personal perspective, it's hard to see anything wrong with what's being said there. Is it wrong to plan? Is it wrong to have a calendar and put things on the calendar? Is, is it wrong to make money? I'll be honest with you, if you read the book of James, he's a little more suspicious of money than you and I are. He's a little less comfortable with money than you and I are. You and I, let's be honest, we're, we're very, very comfortable with money. And when we read passages like that, we don't really even question ourselves. I mean, he does say we're going to do business there and make a profit, but we just consider that a really good thing. We don't ask any questions when it comes to money. We just accepted the fact that money's good and we love it. I mean, honestly, all of us, let's just say it. I mean, we, we love money. I, I do. I don't love that part of me necessarily as a Christian, but I, 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 I love money. I, I love stuff. I, mean, I got an iPad and an iPhone, and, and now I carry a purse. I mean, I hate to say it, but I, I, I carry a, a purse, a, a man bag, primarily because I want my iPad with me at all times. I want my iPhone with me at all times. I mean, I get a little you know, nervous and sweaty if it's not with me. It's not with me right now, and I'm worried to death. I, I mean, you understand? Because if I lay my iPhone down, Matt Betts will pick it up and then update my Facebook post or, 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 or something. I mean, the fact is, I, I just have these possessions that mean an awful lot to me, and I don't think I'm all that different from you. You may have your own stuff, but... 
but, but these possessions, this money has a, a very mighty hold on us. Well, well Pastor Jim, that's just you talking because you got an iPad, and I don't have an iPad. I, don't, I, I can't even work a calculator. Fine. My wife has an iPad. She can't work her iPad. <laughs> I mean, you, you know? This morning she said, Honey, how do you reset an iPad? And that was just, I said, Honey, you just shake it like an etch sketch. I told her just to shake it. Like, <laughs> I just, I love to mess with her. <laughs> shake it like an etch sketch. Yeah, but she didn't shake it like a netch sketch. She says, yeah. <laughs> the congregation that James preached to, we know from Scripture, was poor. Paul talks to him as the poor in Jerusalem. I mean, James's whole congregation, it sounds like, was just poor. When Paul did, was on his missionary journeys, part of what he did was collect an offering. If you read through his letter, 2 Corinthians, read it, he, he's collecting an offering just to take back and help the church at Jerusalem. These people were poor, so poor that that was one of Paul's missions, collect money for James's church. I mean, these people were poor. And I know sometimes you and I have money trouble and we want to say we're poor, but you got to understand that if, if we knew who the poorest person in this whole room is right now, or the poorest person in the sound of my voice, you are still among one of the richest people that's ever walked the face of this planet. I mean, you have air conditioning, I would say, and, and you have probably two pair of shoes at least, and, and you have food in your house. Most of you have cable television and, and computers. I mean, honestly, to, to think of yourself as poor, you really don't understand the world. You don't understand what you have. So you and I are a little bit slow. Anytime Scripture raises a question about money. We have a way of stepping out from under that because we don't really like to question that side of us. But, but now we love it. And that is a spiritual problem for us. Not that we have it, but that we love it. But is even this what James is condemning? Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and, and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow, James says. Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we'll live and, and, and do this or that. Otherwise, here we go, verse 16. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own plans, and all such boasting is evil. Okay, so what is James actually condemning here? Is he condemning just the simple act of planning? No, no. It's not the simple act of planning. That's not what he's condemning. Is he condemning the fact that some people want to make money? No, that's not being condemned. I hope all of you want to go out tomorrow and make some money because it costs money to live. You understand? There's nothing uh, at all wrong about going to work and making money. That, that, that's how we live. This isn't what's being condemned. Look at verse 16. This is what's being condemned. This is how we are warned. You're boasting about your own plans, and all such boasting is evil. What is condemned is our boasting. Now, you and I probably don't think of our planning. as We don't think about this kind of talk as boasting. But you've got to learn to see things from God's perspective. Now, what James says, he actually uses two words here for boasting. What he literally says in the Greek language is you're boasting about your boasting. You're just boasting about your boasting, and all of that is, is evil. He uses two different words for boasting. The first Greek word uh, comes from the word for neck. So, so his word for boasting is kind of that idea of, of really lifting your head up 
and it's, it's a neck word. It has to do with that kind of, I can't do it because I'm just not a girlfriend, but you know how you know, the girls talk, you know, and they're doing all this? That's the boasting right there. You know, when you're talking about tomorrow, you're going to go to such and such a place and do this. It, it's that kind of, I can't do it. Can somebody do it well? Because it's condemned right here. If you can do that, you... It's that idea that you just ain't all that you think you are, and it's that picture of boasting where you got your neck up and you do it. I mean, that's what James, he knew about that, and he's saying, cut that out. Cut that mess out. It's boasting. His first word has got to do with lifting your head up. Something about the neck, and, and you raise it up, and you really start talking. Boasting. But then the second word is, is, is a different word for boasting. He, he piles up two words here. It's, first one's that neck word. And then the second word is sort of the word for a, for a show, a display. The word actually has to do with like a, a traveling show. The idea is, is like a vagabond or, or a huckster. Again, it's a complicated word in James's culture, but for us, it would have to do with like a traveling salesman, somebody who's out there all the time putting on a show, trying to sell something, you understand? But what they're selling is worthless and useless, and so they have to keep moving because sooner or later, people catch on to the fact that, that, that they're just full of it, and they run them out of town. It's that kind of picture, this traveling show where what somebody's selling is just not even worth having, and, and everybody's going to catch on before long. You, you get that? So, so what James is talking about is, is this kind of attitude, this presumption in life that somehow it's all about you and somehow this, that your life is a show. That's what James is saying. That, that your life is, is this show and you're out there selling yourself and you're imagining somehow that people are buying it. And the worst part of it is you're assuming that God's buying it, but, but he's not. He sees straight through the show. You understand? You're like the guy on the infomercial selling the spray-on hair. Excuse me, Rod. The spray-on hair. Have you seen him? And, and, and in the audience, all those people paid to be there going, whoa. They get a bald man up. Excuse me, Warren. They get a bald man up. And then they just, have you seen it? Then they spray his head. And they call it spray-on hair. And everybody in the audience goes, whoa. But what are you thinking at home on the television? He just painted that dude's head. All they did was paint that dude. He just looks like he got dipped. He just painted. Ain't no spray on hair. I mean, you can sit at home and see. Right? Ain't, ain't nothing. That spray on. Ain't spray on hair. That's paint. That's shoe polish. They painted that dude's head, and he's dumb enough to let them. So James says, most of us. In our lives, we're like that guy on the infomercial selling spray on hair. Your life's a show. It's just a show. You're phony. You're fake. And, and, and deep down in your heart, that's your fear that sooner or later, everybody's going to catch on to what a flop you are. I mean, this is what James says. It's, it's just a show. But you will do everything to keep that show going because the really sad part of it is the only person perhaps that really believes this whole thing is you. I mean, the problem is you've bought into it. You actually believe the, the, the show that, that your life is. I mean, you believe it. You're actually believing this, that, that you really are something. You're actually believing that you can say today or tomorrow we'll do such and such a thing. And James says you don't know nothing. 
You don't know much. You're really not very much. This is what James says. It's a show. Your life is a show. You're just boasting about your boasting. You're just sticking your neck up like you're somebody, but, but it's just a show. You're boasting about boasting, and that's evil. It's, it's evil because it puts yourself in the center. You, you put yourself like this is all about you, like there's a stage and a show, and you're the star of it. And James says, this is wickedness. This is evil. You're not all that. You don't know what you think you know. Look what he says, verse 14. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? You don't know anything. You're not in control of this. You can plan all you like, but you aren't in control. It's really not yours to say. You don't even have a say. Do you understand? God has final say, and you're not God. You're not God. You can't do a thing to sustain your own life. You can't keep breath in your lungs. You can't keep your heart beating. You don't even know that you have tomorrow. It's a deception. It's just the worst delusion of all that we somehow think we're keeping all this up in the air. We somehow start believing this show that that we're in control of things and that somehow it's revolving around us. And James says all of that presumption. That presumption that you're in control, that presumption that you're all that, that you're important, that you got something to say. James says, that's just wickedness. Instead, this is how you ought to talk. But it's not so much a talking thing. This is how you ought to think. It's an attitude. Verse 15, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wants me to, I'll live. Okay, you start right there. If, if it pleases the Lord, I'll live, and then I'll do this or that. Now, it's not just you know, being careful to say, Lord willing, every time you say something about the future. I do that sometimes to make sure I don't sin against this verse. Lord willing, you know, I'll get through the sermon. It's not really about just throwing in that kind of verbal tick. It's the attitude of your heart, recognizing that everything that happens in your life, it, it, It's going to be the Lord's will. I mean, what's going to happen is going to be what pleases him, and it's really not about what's pleasing you. You just don't know that much, and and you're not that significant. I'm not either. It's what James says. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. Now, you've seen that, right? It's, it's the morning fog. You come out in the morning, and it's just, it's, we call it a blanket, a blanket of fog. But, but where's that blanket in, in 20 minutes? Just, it's just gone. Just all disappears. And James says, this is what your life is like. It's like a mist. Just spray and gone. Just scatters. Your life's like that, he says. I mean, it's, it's just short. You've caught on to this by now, right? It's just short. It goes by so fast. And the presumption that you and I have to imagine that, that, that our time is ours. Just love to hear somebody say that. You know, I just need a little more me time. I'm going I'm I'm to just have to take off and, and I'm going to have to just run the husband off so I can have a little bit of me time. Good luck with that, honey. Because there's no such thing, sir. There's no such thing as... Me time. You don't have any time that's yours. It's all borrowed. You understand? 
So time isn't yours to plan, it's not yours to kill, it's not yours to waste, it's not yours to wish away. I mean, every single second is a gift from God. If, if the Lord wills, I'll live, and, and, and then I'll do th- this or that. Real simply, what James is saying here is that you need to think about God. You need to think about God all the time. You need to consider him. Now, you don't often do this because when you have to consider God, then all of a sudden you can't continue thinking you are God. When you have to stop and submit to his control, then you have to recognize that you're not in control, and most of you are very, very slow to do that. One of my favorite pastors is a man named Craig Rochelle, who has really made popular an idea what he calls the, the practical atheist practical atheist. Now, you all know what an atheist is, right? An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God, and they're out there trying to make everybody quit praying in school. It's that kind of idea. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe in God, and I'm sure that all of you know about atheists, and you may know some atheists, and you probably really, you know, are are opposed to atheism, and and I get that, But, but what Pastor Craig would want you to consider is that very simply, there are atheists, and then there are what he calls practical atheists, and that means it's a person who's not really an atheist, they would say they believe in God, but they just live like they don't. Does that make sense? They believe in God, but then they just live like there isn't a God, and Craig says that makes them just a practical atheist. And I think this is the kind of churchgoer that James is talking about here. It's the person who claims that they know God, they claim that they're a believer, but then they live their life as if there is no God. They say that they've surrendered to Christ, but then they don't surrender anything in their life. They just plan on going there tomorrow and doing this or that and whatever just pleases them. It's all about what pleases them. But James says that's not how a Christian lives. That's not how a person who really believes in God, that's not how they live. I mean, you can't say you believe in God and then live like you don't even have a God, but most of us live like that. We just go through our life as if everything is up to us, as if we don't have to answer to anybody, but you answer to God. You, you understand? A practical atheist is a person who, who says they believe in God, but honestly, they don't, they don't even know God. They don't even know God. It's a person who says that they believe in God, but honestly, they, they don't pray. I mean, they may pray you know, like the Ricky Bobby kind of, you know, seven-pound baby Jesus kind of prayer. Or, or maybe this just the now I lay me down to sleep or, or God bless this food kind of prayer. But, but if you really needed to pray, you don't have any words. You don't know God. You wouldn't even know how to start to, to listen for his voice. You don't know his voice. It's, you say you believe in him, but you don't know him. You say you follow Christ, but honestly, you don't follow anything but but what you want to do. You are the the master of your own life. You don't follow anybody. You don't care what the scriptures say. You don't even read the scriptures. You call yourself a Christian, but practically you don't live like a Christian. You don't even live like a believer. James says, no, watch it, you people. Watch it. All of you who say, you know, today or tomorrow, I'm going to do this or that or the other, and the next day I'll do something different. He says, you need to be really careful. What you ought to say is, if it pleases the Lord, I'll live. 
I may do this or that or the other if it pleases the Lord. Do you see the difference? It's, it's just considering God and, and what you do. It's just considering him. If you say you believe in him, but then you don't consider him in your day-to-day life, I, I just wonder what makes you call yourself a believer. I, I mean, how self-deceived are you? Open up the Bible of a man who died when he was 25 years old. And in the course of his short life, he wrote six words. Six words that for him just sort of framed his life. He wrote, no reserves. In his life, there was no desire to hold anything back from God. He was, he was all in. He was all out for, for Christ. No reserves. No retreats. He wasn't turning back. He wasn't falling away. He was going to go forward, always forward for Christ. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No, no regrets. If you visit his tombstone, words that simply say, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. So what explains your life? I I know you're all in church. You're all churchgoers. And sometimes there's a self-deception that goes with that. You imagine that because you go to church that somehow you're living a life that pleases God. And they're not the same thing. We can use the phrase practical atheist to explain most of us. We say that we believe in God, but, but our lives don't show that. Our lives don't demonstrate that. That's why James says at the end of his passage here, he says, anybody who knows what they ought to do, but, but they don't do it, that's the very definition of sin. Understand? You, you kind of know, but then you don't do. That's the very definition of sin pray with me Jesus it is so hard to consider you in our everyday lives because our lives are are busy and and we live at a pace where we don't even stop to think. Lord, we just plan and we spend money and, and Sunday rolls back around and we come back to church and in this house, Lord, we think about you. In this house, we pray. In this house, we We listen to scripture read. And in this house, our hearts are moved, Lord. But when we leave this place, our hearts go somewhere else. God, help us. All of us who say we are believers, may we live like believers. All of us who take the name of Christ, may we live like Christ. With nothing held back and no intention of retreating. That we may close our eyes one day and die with no regrets.
Oh God, take our lives. Take us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would raise up so powerful, so strong in this house that every heart would surrender and bend before you. Oh God, bend us. Lord, I pray for every hard heart, every stubborn mind in this house. Lord, I just simply pray that you would break us. Teach us, Lord, how short our lives are, how insignificant we are. Show us how little we know. and Bring us, Lord, to full faith in you. Oh, Lord, may we not be Christians in name only. May we live for you, oh Christ. May there be nothing in our lives that is not Christ. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.